Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is David F. Walker. David is an award-winning writer known primarily for his work in comics, including Luke Cage and Bitterroot. He is the co-creator with illustrator Marcus Kwame Anderson of the new graphic novel history, The Black Panther Party. The stories in the news today remind me of the sentiments of almost 50 years ago, when many young black people felt that policing for them was unfair. George Floyd's murder has forced a hard national conversation about this country's present, which is impossible to do effectively without re-examining its past. And unfortunately, that's not a conversation that all Americans are well-equipped to have. The long-awaited decision in the Huey Newton murder trial, which has drawn worldwide attention, is now very near. The jury of seven women and five men are deliberating the fate of the Black Panther leader on the eighth floor of that building. Fred Hampton was killed December 4th, 1969, when Chicago police raided his apartment and shot and killed him in his own bed. Scholars now widely believe that the Hampton's death was under the FBI's initiative. Hi, my name is David F. Walker, and I am fighting to teach people the lessons that I wish I had learned in school. Sorry, not sorry. Well, thank you so much for doing this, David. And I want to talk to you about your new book on the Black Panther Party. But first, I want to look back on some of your earlier work because I think it's so good. First of all, what drew you to comics? Oh, you know, I discovered comics when I was a kid. I literally learned how to read with comics. This was, you know, like a million years ago. Comics were etched in stone back in those days. And it was something that I just loved. I always gravitated towards that medium. And that was my dream when I was a kid in high school. I wanted to make comics. And then it didn't quite work out. And then at some point I had a probably called a pre-midlife crisis. And I realized- Quarter life crisis? Yeah, quarter life crisis, exactly. And I realized I wasn't doing what I wanted to do with my life and and I needed to give it a shot. I didn't want to hit like- 40 or 50 years old and not at least have tried it. So I just knuckled under and did it. And now we're here talking about comics. Very few people know this, but I actually wrote a graphic novel called Hacktivist. And I never thought that I would be even remotely interested until I came up with this idea. And then I started pitching it around to like networks and everyone was like, yeah, that's good, but we don't really know how to visualize it. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to show you exactly how to visualize it. And we actually wound up doing 10 issues. And it was such an incredible experience. And just coming sort of full circle, my son right now, who is nine years old, who loves to read, has been asking a lot about, are you ready for this? The Bible. Oh. (laughs) And so... Not knowing how to present that to him in a way that he would fully understand, but also, you know, wanting him to understand because he was showing interest. So I wound up getting him a graphic novel version of the Bible. 
and he loved it. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think it's so helpful for kids to have visual, especially in hard stories to tell, which is kind of your specialty. But I want to know how you started writing. Well, again, that goes back to when I was a kid. You know, you're in elementary school and you, first you learn the alphabet and all that sort of stuff. And then you're doing your basic sentences. And then you go from sentences to paragraphs and then paragraphs to stories. And I just kind of went straight from sentences right into stories and was just always writing crazy adventures and crazy stories ever since I was a kid. I was obsessed with the Planet of the Apes movies when I was growing up. So I would write these sort of rip-off Planet of the Apes things. I knew from a really early age that I wouldn't have been able to articulate it quite that way, but I would say, you know, I want to make comic books. Or I'll never forget the first time I saw, I can't remember the magazine, but there was a magazine with an article about the making of a movie. And there was the whole behind the scenes crew. And that was the moment I realized, oh, these things don't magically appear. And whatever those people are doing, I want to do this. I started writing. I read all the time when I was a kid. I was a voracious reader. Even like looking at stuff like Peanuts, I would get the, you know, this is back when there were still daily newspapers. You know, I would get the newspaper and I would read the funnies. And then I would just start writing and drawing my own versions of Beetle Bailey or Peanuts or Hagar the Horrible. And I famously did a WKRP in Cincinnati comic when I was a kid. That's amazing. Yeah, I was as nutty and as weird as you could possibly imagine. I wouldn't say nutty or weird. I would say special. (laughs) That too. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, special. I think the kids that can find their purpose at a young age, that excel in something, that are so sure about what they want to do, that are able to go into their imagination and creatively problem solve, it's so vital for a child. And I often feel like we're getting more and more away from that with how we stress STEM on our educational system at this point. So it's a little scary for me, but to encourage that I think is so important as a parent. And also, you know, it's a pretty good living. And people forget that arts and entertainment are the second largest export of our country next to agriculture. It's a big deal. So if you can nurture that. And make it work for yourself. Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, every single one of us looks for an escape in some capacity, you know, the stressors of the world, whether it's music or film or reading books. And when I was a kid growing up and I was was very much a loner. And so the things that I turned to books and comics and movies really helped me get through some of the, the hardest times in my life. There was characters that I found myself relating to and striving to be in some capacity. And while I talk about more than just comics, I feel like comics are the medium that have really inspired me the most and they have helped me to understand myself and the world and have really answered a lot of questions I've had about life. And I know that when a lot of other people have questions about life, they tend to turn to things like self-help books, but not me. Uh, I've always found myself turning to fiction because I believe that narrative provides a world where you can simulate feelings and experiences in a safe way. I feel really good doing that for other people. Once you can articulate what that's all about, what that feeling is all about, what storytelling, you could call it storytelling or the power of myth. People need that magic elixir to make them feel better. And especially in this day and age when there's a lot of things that make us feel not so hot. Right. And I think that that's why the one thing that we can always count on is to find something that we can love. 
I think that that's what has made Netflix so incredibly successful is that you watch two things. They know what you love and then they keep feeding you what you love and to be able to escape in hard times. And also, I was dyslexic as a child, so school was super hard for me. So art was really the only way I learned to read through poetry and scripts. And, you know, I had a learning difference. So to me, it was real important that I could see it in a way that was substantial enough to move me. And it didn't happen in conventional ways, but it did happen. I want to talk to you about Luke Cage comics because you wrote them. And it's got to be so weird to then see on screen what you kind of developed. So what was that like for you? Well, you know, Luke Cage had been around forever. He was one of my favorite superheroes as a kid. So it was a character that I'd been wanting to write forever. In fact, the first proposal I ever wrote for comics long before I made it into the industry was for a Luke Cage comic. And when they announced Netflix was going to be doing the series, I had just started negotiations with Marvel to write comics for them and Luke Cage comics. It was a very interesting experience, but they keep those worlds apart. They keep the comics world and the live action film and all that sort of stuff. And of course, I'm paying attention to what they're doing in the show. And I know that the show's paying attention to some of the stuff that I'm doing in comics, but we're not supposed to have these conversations. And so it sort of becomes like the secret language or so, where you're just sort of communicating like with hand signals or whatever. So to me, it was like, I'm pretty weird in that I try not special. Special, okay. I try not to think too hard about, um, I guess you could put it like how my work is perceived in terms of like, oh, you're working on something that's a TV show or you're working on something that's connected to a movie. Luke Cage is based on a comic book that came out in the 70s. And I remember the 70s. I think I did the Sheiky then. Uh, I had to uh-huh. pick with a, with a fist at the end of it. I mean, <laughs> what makes the 70s relevant today? What makes this comic still relevant to the 21st century? Oh, well, the 70s was a sweet spot. I mean, it's post-civil rights. I think people were kind of discovering themselves anew in a different society that's kind of been uh, changed in a a major way. And when you're trying to explore things in a society, when you have new rules, new opportunities, here you have this this black guy who's uh, basically a superhero under under those same rules, that same new world, and he's kind of discovering who he is. On a good day, I have figured out how to put my pants on like both legs at a time, right? And so I don't have to do one leg at a time, but I'm just a regular person. And it's funny because I, you know, I have a couple of friends whenever something really positive happens, whether it's, you know, a good review or something related to a film production that I'm working on, they get all excited and they're like, oh, you're a star. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. Not even close. My socks have holes in them. I think once you have your system and your process, I don't think it changes much, regardless of how successful you become, right? I can tell you that, you know, as an adult walking onto a set and what my process was, it's exactly the same in my late 40s that it was in my early 20s, right? And so I think that finding that and finding what that process is might be the key to longevity because you don't need to alter it. And I think it's important that there is some separation between the graphic novel and what they're doing on the TV show. 
Oh, all the time. And for me, I've worked in film and TV in the past and it's fine, but I just happen to love this medium, right? And I love the possibilities of what you can do with it. And so for me, a lot of it's just about giving back to this thing that was really special to me when I was younger. I mean, when I was a kid, comic book cost like 35 cents, you know? And if you were a kid who didn't have a lot of money, which I was one of those kids, you could get really cheap entertainment and you could trade it with your friends. You know, nowadays, every kid has to have a smartphone and all these things and tablets. And there's something very working class to me about comics. And even the history of the, the medium is very working class. And like, I love that, you know? Of course. And they're beautiful. They can be so beautiful. Tell us about Bitterroot. How did a comic series about monster hunters set in the Harlem Renaissance come to be? It actually started with Luke Cage, actually. I was working with Sanford Green, an artist Sanford Green over at Marvel. We were working on a Power Man and Iron Fist series. Power Man is Luke Cage's other name. And when that book ended, Sanford was contacted by another publisher and they wanted to do something with him. And he had been developing this project called Bitterroot, which was just sort of languishing for a while. And him and the other creator called me up and said, would you like to come on board? And I said, sure, let's do it. And they said, it's about a family of monster hunters during the Harlem Renaissance. And because I can be a bully sometimes, I said, okay, yeah, so there it's a family of monster hunters, but what's special about the monsters? And they kept, you know, well, they're monsters. And I said, no, no, let's, we got to find something that really differentiates both the characters and the monsters and really sets this book apart. And so that's when I started exploring the idea of the monster being a metaphor for some of the ills of society. And there's probably no greater ill than racism. And Well, the isms, you know, there's racism and sexism and some of the obias like homophobia and transphobia. We started really developing that idea of what would happen if all of these systems of oppression could manifest themselves into a form of monster. And then how would you combat that? Think of it this way. You know what you're like first thing in the morning when you don't have caffeine? You don't know that. Why? Look. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Look, this live. Why are you trying to get me in trouble? (laughs) Baby, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) But 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 hate is is a thing that turns them into monsters. The greatest horror stories, monsters are always a metaphor for something else. And in our story, it's they're a metaphor for hatred and racism and intolerance and oppression. And so they, people physically transform into just really, I think they're cute and cuddly looking personally. They're like they're, Twitter trolls brought to life. And so that's where we're at. It's so brilliant. And one of the things that I love about that series is that while the monsters are created by racism or represent racism and hate, the main characters, they work to heal those monsters instead of killing them or slaying them. And I think that there's, I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to offer that kind of kindness and grace in that idea as a writer. It's just a generosity that you offered. And I wonder what made you write it this way. Stupidity, I think maybe. Uh, It was, I'm very prone to coming up with 
somewhat complex ideas, but not having the solution right away and thinking that it will come to me later. I'm a big fan of if you take genre fiction, whether it's horror or sci-fi or something like that, and wrapping some sort of message in it. And so that was sort of what helped birth the whole Bitterroot thing, these idea of the monsters. But as we started developing it more, I was like, well, I feel like there's an irresponsibility to saying, oh, if I give you an injection or vaccine or something, we can suddenly cure racism. We can cure these societal ills. So the really big challenge has been, well, how do we work around that? How do we get into the idea that there isn't necessarily a simple solution? It's been interesting because as the film has been in development, like those conversations are coming up more because film people ask all kinds of crazy questions that you're like, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that. I'm just going to make a comic. But I, I really wanted to sort of explore... And I think we're seeing it right now in this country, especially where this country is very sick. There's a lot of illness in this country when it comes to systems of oppression. And the question facing us is how do we combat it? You can't just go out and, you know, beat the hell out of somebody or kill them just because you disagree with them. I mean, there's some people who think that way, but it's it, that's not going to do anybody any good if we do it. It's okay to be on either side at all and 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 disagree about politics that's what this country is built upon but when hate is injected into politics it's what this country is not supposed to be about and yet the gap between sides has never felt so wide this minnesotan says he couldn't bring himself to even cast a ballot this year well, i think our political system is broken at this point to be honest with you how do we re-educate people? How do we get them to recognize our individual humanity? Because that's what, when we're talking about racism, or if we're talking about sexism, or we're talking about homophobia or transphobia, or any of these systems that are used to discriminate and oppress, what it's really doing is they're using it to dehumanize individuals or dehumanize a big group. And my belief is that once you've actively dehumanized somebody or a group of people, the only way you can do that is by giving up your humanity. Right, You have to give up a piece of your humanity in order to take somebody's humanity away. So if we are working to restore our humanity, part of what we have to do is we have to restore the humanity of these people that don't want us here. There's so many people grappling with it now. We're grappling with it after, especially after January 6th. You know, what are we going to do? Well, and it's also, we're hearing this word unity, unity, unity so much right now. And it's like, well, how do we unify if there's no accountability? And what does it take to reach that point when we're talking about people? How do we hold people like Marjorie Taylor Greene accountable for infiltrating our government as a member of a cult? I mean, it's a really tricky time. And I don't know what the answer is. I know that in politics in particular, we have to at least try for unity. I mean, people's lives depend on bipartisan cooperation. And I say it all the time, but it is true. None of these bills that we want to set forth to help people are ever going to get done if we continue on the path that we're on now. So I do believe that we do have to figure out what the cure is to, you know, get monsters and especially now. But do you think that there is a way to cure the re-emboldened white supremacists in America today? The optimist in me says there has to be a way. It's interesting because you use the term unity, and I've been hearing that bandied about a lot lately. And I think one of the things that we need to accept in this country is that there's never been unity. It's this ideal that we think about and we talk about, but everybody has a different meaning for what it is. And sometimes I feel like it's like, well, 
until we have a very universal definition of what unity means, then I don't know how we're going to get there. I just remember seeing all these memes popping up on social media and people posting after the January 6th insurrection. And people were saying, you know, it's not that we want to see people that were storming the Capitol beaten and abused the way Black Lives Matter activists were beaten and abused by the police. We just want the police to stop abusing us, right? Stop abusing everybody. And there's this part of me that's like, well, but if we can't have that, I'll just be happy if the police just beat the hell out of everybody. You know, it's like, like, let's be equal opportunity. Like be consistent. Yeah, 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 yeah. But of course, that's not an option either. So, and this is really crucial. And I don't know if you've discovered this, the older I get, the more complex I start to see things being. And the more I realize that it's, you know, when I was younger, I had this, you know, I call it the fire in the belly, this fight and the spark and this belief that I can change the world. And then you get older and you become either more pragmatic or maybe more cynical. And then it becomes an issue of, okay, well, if I can't change the whole world, how can I change what's around me? What can I do? What's the part that I can play? And even then that can sometimes be difficult. I mean, it's like if you're trying to potty train your kids and they don't want to be potty trained, no matter what, at some point you're going to have an 18 year old walking around in a diaper flinging poo, you know? So it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's usually they get over that face. <laughs> I also think that there is a lot that is good about this time and that everything is sort of on the surface. Like we can't deny it anymore. And I think that that's probably good because that means we have to figure out solutions. And I do think that you're right where, you know, there is no perfect language. That word unity could mean something very different to whoever. I know that for me, I can never be close to someone who has a certain belief system that I don't believe in or that is a bigot or racist or any of the phobias. But I do believe that people can have an awakening and hold themselves accountable and start to shift and see a different way. And we hear it time and time again, you know, white supremacists getting further away and understanding the hurt that they've brought. We've also seen it from a lot of, not a lot, but there should be more, but a lot of members of the Republican Party that feel responsible for creating Trump, people that started the Tea Party and that allowed it to continue to go. But we can't function like this anymore because we're not functioning. As a government, we're not functioning. And as a society and as a people, it's sped up. And I think this is good, the way in which we talk to our young people about race. And I think that's important because I think that the only time in maybe the generation before ours was if you weren't experiencing racism, you were learning about it in school during Martin Luther King Jr. week. And it becomes more like a lesson or something that is not real almost. It becomes almost like a myth. I talk about this quite a bit. There's the historical myth and then there's the historical fact. And in this country, each of us is educated through a series of myths. Unless we're really lucky and we get a really good teacher, we don't actually get taught history. We get taught this very palatable, digestible form of history that then becomes indoctrinated in sort of our individual psyche and the national psyche, right? And the problem is, is that once you begin to shake that foundation of those lessons that we learn, once you begin to pull apart the myths, you're actually pulling apart a lot of people's individual identity. Just look what happened when the president, in the midst of nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, 
announced plans to hold a rally in Tulsa on June 19th, a decision astonishingly toned down for two key reasons. Next Friday, June 19th, is Juneteenth, an annual holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. As for Tulsa, 99 years ago this month in 1921, the city witnessed the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the nation's worst outbreaks of racial violence, recently portrayed in HBO's Watchmen. Now, the reason they're mentioning Watchmen there is a lot of Americans learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre for the very first time, nearly a century after it happened, from watching that show. Basically, the night that episode airs, many white Americans went, holy shit, I had no idea this happened. While many black Americans went, holy shit, white people are going to freak the fuck out when they find out this happened. It's the same thing with politics. It's the same thing with religion. And so one of the things that I'm always trying to push is that you aren't your favorite book. You aren't your favorite movie. You aren't your, you know, these are the things that you enjoy or the ideologies that you may have, but any of these things can change. When I was a kid, my favorite food was Fruity Pebbles. Honestly, it's still Fruity Pebbles, but, you know, (laughs) I I could have changed if I wanted to. I don't like Cocoa Pebbles at all, but I can't tell you why I've always had this innate curiosity and why I've always wanted to learn new things and different things. And I don't understand people who don't want to learn anything new. I kind of enjoy it when either someone points out something that I, a fact that I got wrong, or if I learned something new, and I'm always trying to look for something new to learn. So this comes back to a lot of the work that I'm doing now. It's like, how can we make learning fun? You know, how do we make it accessible? You were talking about your son liking to read and you you said he's nine, right? Correct? Yes. And so he's just starting to get to that age. He's another couple of years away from where the books that are for his age are going to start having fewer and fewer pictures. And the fewer pictures that are in a book, the more likely some kids are to not connect with the book. And there's a reason why child illiteracy begins to shoot up after a certain age. If you look at where those age groups are, the correlation is usually right around the time that pictures come out of books. And so it's interesting to me because when I was doing the research for the Black Panther Party book or doing research on my Frederick Douglass book, the one thing that kept running through my mind was, man, if I was in high school or if I was in junior high, I wouldn't read any of these books. There's no pictures. There's big words that I'm having. I mean, I'm a college professor. If I have to go look up a word in the dictionary, you failed. You failed at reaching me. And so I think that one of the first steps we need towards unity is we need to recognize the importance of teaching people how to think critically and working with I don't want to say limitations because I feel like limitations is too strong of a word, but you were saying that you were dyslexic, right? And so there's a time where dyslexia was like, nobody called it dyslexia. You were just slow or special or a problem kid and you would get thrown into whatever class. And you know, and anybody who's listening to this who has someone in their lives who might have dyslexia, that doesn't make you stupid. It just means you have to learn a different way. And that's the thing. Education doesn't allow for that. The way our public school system is, the way this country is set up, it doesn't allow for much by way of alternative learning, critical thinking. And until we can do that, because it's that lack of critical thought that allows people to go on to QAnon and believe that sort of stuff. Well, yeah. And also, I think the thing that is so interesting now is that we have to start teaching our young people about disinformation and misinformation at a much younger age because it's more accessible to them. 
because of the internet, because of social media. And I think that that's why, you know, I was watching this thing on QAnon CNN special, and I I was not taken by the fact that people could believe what Q believes in as far as like liberals eating babies to stay youthful, which is a literal thing that they believe in. But I was taken by how quickly it took over their lives. It was like a few years and that was it. And now look at us. Now they're infiltrating our government. It is a large sect of the Republican Party. So I think that that's an important thing that we're going to have to try to figure out how to teach our young people, because I think that that makes them vulnerable to being indoctrinated into things that are not healthy. That brings us to your new book, which is just spectacular. It is a graphic novel history of the Black Panther Party. Why was it so important for you to tell this story and tell the story in this way? Well, in part because I believe in this medium. Going back to when I was a kid, there was a comic series called Classics Illustrated, and they would do these comic book adaptations of Moby Dick or Tale of Two Cities. And that was how I was introduced to literature, period. And so, again, I'm like, proof positive that this medium is successful in sparking people's interest. And for me, the Black Panther Party is something that I thought I knew a fair amount about. And when I started really, like in my early 20s, as I was going through my angry, rebellious phase, I was studying the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement and other forms of sort of radical reformists. I really gravitated towards the Panthers, I think in part because when I was a kid growing up, you know, my grandparents had subscriptions to like Ebony and Jet Magazine. And so I knew who Huey P. Newton was. I knew who Bobby Seale was, but I didn't really know who they were. I'm probably like 18 or 19 when I get Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, and and just sort of really started studying what I thought was a deep dive back then. Now I kind of laugh at it, you know. And there was a point in my early 20s when I'd read about Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, who was killed by the Chicago Police Department. And that story moved me so much. And I'll say I was like 21 or 22 when I found out who he was. And I think that that was also one of the first things that when I learned about it, I was like, how come I didn't know about this, right? Like, this is literally something that happened within my lifetime. Fred Hampton was murdered December 4th, 1969, and I was born December 1st, 1968. So this happened in my lifetime. And the more I studied his life and tried to get more information about it, the more I thought, how do we get this story out to the world? How do we tell people more? More about it. And I was fortunate enough to write a graphic novel about the life of Frederick Douglass. And I had mentioned to my editor at the time that I was really interested in doing something about Fred Hampton. Fred, where does the Black Panther Party stand concerning the Weathermen, the SDS? We stand way back from the SDS and the Weathermen because we believe that the Weathermen action is two actions. It's REM2 and Weathermen. We think they call them both national action. We think that REM2 is national action, Weathermen is national reaction. You know, We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. It's customistic in that it's leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call that revolution. 
I can't remember if my editor knew who Fred Hampton was or not. And he said something to the effect of like, well, the real story you have to tell is the Black Panther Party story. Like you have to educate people about who the Panthers were or they may not care who Fred Hampton is. And I can't say that I agree with that 100%, but I agreed with it enough that I was willing to take on this sort of bigger scope. And if you work in the entertainment industry, which I work in a facet of that, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is it that I'm trying to do here? Am I trying to tell an entertaining story or am I trying to lean more into education? And if you're leaning more towards the education and teaching, it's all about context. You have to contextualize everything. And that was when I realized, okay, I got to tell the story of who the party is. And in a lot of ways, I'm really glad I did it because this month is the release of Judas and the Black Messiah. And there's no way I'd want to go toe to toe with that, even though we're completely different mediums like that film is everything you could imagine it to be in terms of like a powerful work of cinema. And they do a great job of telling the story without getting too deep into who the Panthers were. But there's nothing worse than, I always go back to this, when Spike Lee's Malcolm X came out and it was like, there's all these people that were running around as if they knew who Malcolm X was because they'd seen that movie. And I was like, you know, there's a book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, there's all these other things. And I'm more into the story that gives you a bigger story. And I know that this might be a really difficult single question, but I'm guessing that many of my listeners know very little about the Black Panther Party. So learning what you've learned as an adult, someone now, or during your research, when you did the deep dive, can you give us just a brief overview, if it can be, of the formation of the party and some of the key players and events? So the Black Panther Party... Their original name was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. They formed in Oakland in 1966. If you're wondering just how divisive the Black Panthers were and still are as an organization, look no further than Super Bowl 50. Beyonce's background dancers merely dressed up as members of the revolutionary group and have managed to capture the nation's outrage and admiration. So, is the Black Panther Party to be praised or shunned? I think the biggest misperception about the Panthers is they, you know, were kind of these anti-white, gun-toting, you know, mostly male, you know, violent, militant black people. You know, these were young people. I mean, they were mostly, you know, under 20, um, and they were really trying to make a change. There was another Black Panther Party before that, and that was out of either Alabama or Arkansas, and they were a political party. And so the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was sort of modeling themselves after this other organization, which had grown out of SNCC, which was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. These are all these organizations within the civil rights movement. And in Oakland, the Bay Area was a very violent city with a lot of police brutality going on. So there was a lot of organizations that were starting to form that were trying to figure out how to fight police brutality. And Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton got together. They were both college students and they decided to start their own organization. And the plan was they were going to police the police. Huey had studied law and famously he had studied law not to be a lawyer. He studied law so he could be a better criminal. And he had learned everything about like gun rights and gun carrying rights. And so they started this organization and basically in the beginning, all they did was they patrolled the streets of Oakland with guns and they basically policed the police. But it grew from there very quickly. And they started a free breakfast program. They started medical clinics and it began to grow as a national organization. By 68, there was chapters all over the country, but it was also labeled by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI as the single greatest threat to America. And so FBI and law enforcement targeted the Panthers for destruction. 
the FBI was incredibly successful in their counterintelligence program. One of the things that seems so present throughout the history of the Black Panther Party and which carries us through in so many ways of life today is the present of law enforcement at the center of this story. Can you just speak a little bit to that? Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing is, and this comes down to the contextualization, right? Starting in the 1920s and then all the way up through the 60s, there was what was called the Great Migration. The vast majority of African-Americans in this country lived in the southern United States. But starting around 1919, 1920 or so, they started migrating north and west, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. The Great Migration occurred in the decades after the Civil War and witnessed the movement of hundreds of thousands of African-Americans from out of the South to communities in the North and West. Historians generally talk about the Great Migration in two waves, one from 1910 to 1940, and one that lasts roughly from 1940 to 1970, when the Great Migration is said to have ended. It really picked up during World War II when a lot of families moved to, like, say, the shipyards that were in L.A. or up in Seattle or Portland. But as Black families were migrating and cities were growing, we'll take Oakland and Los Angeles as two prime examples. As they were growing, they needed bigger police forces. And so, like, these police forces were notorious for going to places like Alabama and Louisiana and recruiting police officers from these incredibly racist places that the Black people had fled. And so, in essence, racism followed Black people wherever they went. And so the systems of oppression being law enforcement, they had people working in law enforcement that were already tied into this ideology. And when you study really the history and the origins of the police in this country, (laughs) you know, it's tied directly to slave catching and the enforcement of slavery. So the Panthers came about at a time, 1966 was coming off of several very intense years of racial violence in this country. And then, you know, 67 culminated in one of the most violent years of racial violence in this country's history. Second, probably only to 1919, which was the red hot summer of 1919, when there was hundreds of uprisings all over the country, all of which started with police brutality. And the same with the riots that we saw throughout this country in like, say, 63, 65, and 67, if I remember correctly. It seems like it was always odd-numbered years. And so when you look at this, you just see this long history of the police not protecting and serving so much as maintaining a status quo. And that status quo, part of it is poverty and lack of resources. And so the interesting thing is when George Floyd was killed last year and all the Black Lives Matter protests started happening and violence started happening and the police were beating everybody up and cities started burning. I was definitely that one person who was not surprised. It was like, this was a gimme. It was going to happen. And the sad thing is, is that the government knew for sure, the federal government knew that you could go online right now and type in the Kerner Commission report 1968 Kerner Commission Report, you get a free PDF of it. It's like 400 pages. And it tells you, it spells out exactly what was wrong with this country in terms of race and race relations, where the country was headed, and what needed to be done to fix it. In the late 60s, after riots and unrest around the country, President Lyndon Johnson created a bipartisan commission to assess what could be done about social injustice and economic inequality. It came to be known as the Kerner Commission. It was controversial and it concluded in February of 1968, quote, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. 
And it's one of those things like when you hear it, you think, no, there's no way. This thing can't exist. How come I've never heard it? Because, you know, 1968 wasn't that long ago, right? And how come we didn't learn about this in school? How come we don't know about it? But it exists and it's a real thing. And when you begin to study some of these things, it's infuriating on one level, but in another way, it's almost liberating because it's like, oh, now I kind of get some of this. Now I get why some of the problems are here. I don't know how to fix them, but it makes sense. I was going to ask you, then, what is the takeaway? Because in the context of seemingly endless streams of Black Americans killed by law enforcement, is there something that we haven't learned that we can learn from this past that we can use to make a better present and future? That's a great question. And I'll tell you, it's a hard answer for some people to hear, but this is what I think is at the heart of it. So President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, was the one who formed the Kerner Commission, and he commissioned them to figure out what was wrong with race relations in America. And they come back with this scathing report, and he refused to believe it. He thought that the Kerner Commission had been infiltrated by communists, and you know it was very typical of the 50s and 60s mentality. And so rather than essentially looking in the mirror and recognizing the fact that, okay, I'm part of the problem, they chose to ignore it. And that's been, when we're talking about the history of race and the idea of race in this country, and how do we cope with it, it's always been a question of ignoring it, down to the writing of the Constitution, when the decision was made to both leave out anything dealing with slavery, especially condemnation of slavery, and then down to what's known as the three-fifths compromise within the Constitution of the United States, which said that slaves, enslaved people, only counted as three-fifths of a person. So when you really think about the fact that when this country became a country, when we went from being a colony to a nation, we brought with us not only this horrific practice of enslaving other human beings, we then stripped them of their humanity. And we've just been doing it ever since. Now, the only way to get past it, and I'm sure you've heard people say this before, well, my family didn't own slaves and I don't own slaves. And it's like, yeah, I don't care. It's like, I've never sexually assaulted a woman before, but that doesn't mean it's not my responsibility to make sure it stops, right? You can't use the excuse of, I haven't done it or my family hasn't done it. It sounds like a cliche, but either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution and you have to make that decision. And part of that solution is this acknowledgement. I talk about this with men a lot. It's like, if we as men don't take responsibility for what the worst men in society are doing, then we're no better than that worst man, right? And there's no right thinking man out there who wants to say, oh, I'm partially responsible for the oppression, degradation, and exploitation of women. Like, none of us want to say it, but we're all part of it, right? And so the question then becomes, what do you do about it? And I think to a certain extent for a lot of white people, it's the same way. It's like no one wants to admit that they're culpable even if they can't see the connections, right? You don't have to see gravity to know that it's holding you down to the ground, right? So just because you don't see something. It's such a weird dynamic because I think about instances where it is not discussed for fear of discussing it. And then when it is discussed, there is a defensive thing that happens. And when I first started getting into the racial justice work that I do, I had the same thing where I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And to be able to drop that and be able to see the reality of the situation, but also listen to those who are closest to the pain and allow yourself to feel empathy and embarrassment and 
shock and horror for the ways in which we have continued to oppress in the name of a lot of different things has been quite humbling for me, for sure. But something that's given me the greatest reward ever, because now I can recognize it. And I go, oh, yeah, that's that thing that is preventing us from getting past this and moving forward and coming up with, you know, whether it be reparations or how we hold the country accountable for how we've oppressed black people for hundreds of years. But I'm excited to try to figure it out and I'm excited to try to help and I'm excited that there's people like you who can lead the way. And I think it's really important that we allow You know, as we've seen, black people have completely saved this country and this democracy many times. And I got to tell you, I feel pretty good when it's not white men leading. I'll be super honest. Or that they have a staff of people that aren't white men around them. I feel more at ease. So I have a lot of hope for what's going to come next. I want to know what gives you hope. (laughs) What gives me hope? Action gives me hope. In that when I see people doing stuff, even if it's just having a simple conversation with uh, some semblance of civility, I have this philosophy that hope without action just becomes superstition. And so you have to do something in order for that hope to manifest itself. And so the thing that gives me hope is it's really interesting. I live in Portland, Oregon, which is not exactly the most diverse city in the country. It's not as bad as some, but it's this is a fairly white city. And I often feel out of place here. And so one of the things that was really giving me hope over like the last, we'll say six months to a year was when all of the protests were starting up really hardcore in 2020 was the number of Black Lives Matter signs that I saw going up in what I knew were not homes where Black folks lived. And this realization that to put a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard in 2020 really means something different than putting it in your front yard in, say, 2018, especially in a city like Portland, where there's a significant presence of groups like the Proud Boys and and other white nationalists and racists. And I realized that you can't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, all white people are evil and, you know, whitey's the devil. Like, that's not the case. The case is like, okay, I need to help you see my humanity. And if I can help you see my humanity, you're going to see yours in yourself and me reflected in me. And so the hope is, who do we have in office right now? You know, the fact that we managed to get Biden and Harris in office, that gives me hope. I'm very much a pragmatist, but the fact that you and I, a man of color and a woman can have a discourse like this and talk the two of us coming from very different backgrounds, but coming together and having this conversation and knowing that tomorrow you're going to talk to whoever you're going to talk to. And I'm going to, I teach part-time. So tomorrow I'm going to be talking to my students. It's knowing that there are other people out there who want to do something, even if they don't know what to do. The fact that somebody says, what can I do? If you say, what can I do? As opposed to saying, hey, it's not my problem. I didn't do this. And it's interesting to me because I haven't had this conversation in a a long time, the race conversation, as much as I had it when I was younger. I really had moved on to trying to talk about more gender equality because that was my thing that I needed to tackle, right? I remember at the beginning of the Me Too movement where it was like every guy I was talking to, and I was saying it to myself, like, well, well, what happens if I'm wrongly accused, you know, da 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 And then there was this moment of like, 
Well, if you're wrongly accused, you know, the truth's going to come out. You got to have faith that the truth's going to come out. If you're really concerned, it probably means you did something wrong, right? And so just having exactly that right. conversation, yeah, and having that conversation and knowing that like, yeah, there's things that I've said and done that, you know, when I was 20, 22 years old, that was like dumb things. You know, I wasn't a terrible person by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like, yeah, I wish I could go back and apologize to some people. You know, I wish I could take back some of the stupid homophobic jokes that I made when I was in high school because I didn't know any better. I can't go back and fix any of that. All I can do is go forward. And I see enough people with the desire to move forward. And as long as there's adults who are willing to move forward and wanting to move forward and they're educating their young their children young people around them there's always going to be something to hope for if you give up hope what's the point exactly well you give me hope lead the way lead the way <laughs> david thank you so so much this was absolutely magical and i so appreciate you and your work i'm an african american cultural studies professor And so, as you can imagine, African-American culture is kind of serious around my home. So I was very proud that my son was excited about what he had learned that day in school. So I said, well, what would you learn? He said, I learned about Rosa Parks. I said, okay, what did you learn about Rosa Parks? He said, I learned that Rosa Parks was this frail old black woman in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, And she sat down on this bus and she had tired feet. And when the bus driver told her to give up her seat to a white patron, she refused because she had tired feet and it had been a long day and she was tired of oppression. And she didn't give up her seat. And she marched with Martin Luther King and she believed in nonviolence. And I guess he must have looked at my face and saw that I was a little less than impressed by his um, history lesson. And, and so he stopped and he's like, Dad, what's wrong? What, what, what did I get wrong? I said, son, you didn't get anything wrong, but I think your teacher got a whole lot of things wrong. History matters. Teaching history in a way that is accessible to people of all learning styles matters. And telling the stories of parts of our histories that many Americans may not know, like the history of the Black Panther Party, it matters. The cliche goes that history is written by the winners. But in the way we've told American history, we're all losers. When our historical record focuses primarily on the story of white people, we miss both critical lessons and the richness and fullness and sadness of our past. Worse, it leads us to fulfill that other old cliche, that history is doomed to repeat itself. So I challenge each of us to take this opportunity to seek out historical stories of people who lived in our country, but who come from different cultures and experiences than your own. If you watch a documentary or pick up a book written by someone who doesn't look like you, if you're a book reader, grab a graphic novel. See history in a totally different way. Learn something you didn't know and understand a little bit more what it means to be an American. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.